Well, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus gives seven messages to seven churches that John is writing to. And uh, for the next couple months, since it's only once a month that we do this evening service, I want to look at what Jesus writes to these seven churches. And um, every message that Jesus gives, there are seven important things that he shares. Uh, First, Jesus gives a description of himself. And so he starts each letter uh, describing something specific about himself, and it's different for each letter. Uh, and it's interesting that he describes something about himself that the readers need to really understand, especially in light of what he's about to share with them. Uh, the second thing that Jesus does is he gives a commendation to the church. So after describing something about himself, he starts with something positive to commend them for what they're doing. Um, and then after he gives that uh, commendation, he moves on to the rebuke. Uh, here's what you're doing well, and here's what you're not doing well. Uh, and then he moves on to the remedy. Here's what you're doing wrong, and here's now how I want you to fix what you're doing wrong. And then he gives a warning. If you don't fix it, this is what's going to happen to you. And then he gives an exhortation to them uh, after the warning of how they should respond to his warning. And then finally, a promise reward. If you are obedient to what I'm telling you, there's going to be a reward for you for those who do what I tell you to do. So in each one of these seven messages, you're going to see these seven important things that Jesus includes in each one of them. And when you take all the seven messages and you put them together, you really have Jesus dealing with pretty much every single issue that the church is going to deal with. Uh, you know, So you have some churches like the one we're going to look at tonight, which is doing pretty well. You have other churches that have a lot of issues and problems. But when you take them all together, you know, we're going to see kind of all these different difficulties and challenges that churches face that we'll be able to relate to in all of them. And so uh, there's a lot to learn. And tonight we're going to start with the first church that Jesus addresses, which is the church of Ephesus. Uh, And so Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through 7, we see what Jesus says to this church. He says this, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the first message we have here, Jesus gives to the church in Ephesus. And the first thing that Jesus does is he's going to do with every one of the letters. He gives a description, something specific about himself. Now, if you remember two months ago, uh, we looked at Revelation chapter 1, uh, and we saw the description that we're given of Jesus on the throne now. And it's interesting that every one of the descriptions that Jesus uses uh, to the uh, seven churches, he picks something from that description of Revelation chapter 1, but he's also picking something that is specific to what he's about to share with them that would 
connect who he is with the message he's about to declare. And so for this group, Jesus says, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And so as remember from chapter 1, the, the stars are, are these uh, messengers, the lampstands represent the church. And so Jesus is the one who holds these seven stars or holds these messengers in his right hand. Jesus has the messengers of the church and he holds them securely. The church belongs to Jesus. It's connected to Jesus. This is something important for them to remember. And he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which represent the seven churches. He's present with them. He's always there with them. And, and I think that the interesting thing to note with Jesus' description is he should be something that they're regularly connected to. He's meant to be something that's a priority, that he's in the midst of these churches, that he holds them, that he's central to them, that he should be the focus and the priority. And we're going to see this is an interesting description because they've left that. You know, that focus, that priority, that connection with Jesus, that's the problem that this church has. And so he's bringing this reality of who he is to them to remind them of the kind of place that he should have in their life. And so Jesus starts with this description of himself, and then he moves to the commendation. What is it that you guys are doing well? And I will say this, the church in Ephesus has more that they're doing well than any of the other churches. So, you know, he has a lot of good things to say about them. Verses 2 and 3 says this, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So in this list, Jesus really shares four very positive, very important things that this church is doing well. And I would think that any church would love to have these four things. Jesus saying, you do this well, you do this well, you do that well, and you do that well. These are, are great things. And I've kind of just come up with one word for each of the things that Jesus says to kind of describe what is happening here. First, they're a serving church. Jesus says, I know your works. I know you guys are putting a lot of work into serving me. There, there's a lot that you're doing for me, and this is something that he's proud of them for. You guys are, are a church that does a lot of works for Jesus, and that's a great thing. Second, they were a sacrificing church. He says, I know your labor. You have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. The Greek word here translated labor means to toil to the point of exhaustion. You know, these, these believers have sacrificed. They're, they're laboring so much, they're toiling to the point of exhaustion. They're saying, hey, we're willing to give up for you. We're willing to sacrifice for you to serve you, Jesus. Third, they were a steadfast church. He says, I know your patience. You have persevered and have patience. The Greek word here translated patience means steadfast endurance under trial. And so that's something we see from this church, that they were just patiently enduring the steadfastness that, that kind of described the way in which they conducted themselves through the difficult times and hard times. They were willing to uh, patiently endure what they had to go through for the sake of Christ. Fourth, they were a separated church. Jesus says, you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. 
Here we see something very important about the church in Ephesus, the separation in the sense of, you know, they were very cautious about who they would bring on board and, and the people who were claiming to be apostles. And they said, well, wait a second, we're going to test this to make sure it's true. We're going to test you with the word of God. We're going to make sure that you're not a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. We're going to make sure that you truly are who you claim to be. Uh, and this is something a lot of the other churches weren't doing. So they were bringing in a lot of heresy. But this church was very careful to make sure that they checked people out with the word of God and spotted false teachers. Charles Spurgeon said this about the church testing people. It says, this was grand of them. It showed a backbone of truth. I wish some of the churches of this age had a little of this holy decision about them. For nowadays, if a man be clever, he may pre preach the vilest lie that was ever vomited from the mouth of hell, and it will go down with some. And I think those words are just so true today that they're, you know, if you can package it the right way, if you can proclaim it with charisma, there are so many people who will just swallow it down and take it on board and believe it, even though it goes completely against what the Bible teaches. And so they were not ones who were easily deceived and led astray because they checked and tested things. You know, I read a story about the importance of uh, testing things. In Georgia, there was a high school student who won first prize for a science fair. In his project, he urged people to sign a petition demanding strict control or total elimination of the chemical dihydrogen monoxide because it causes excessive sweating and vomiting. It's a major component in acid rain. It can cause severe burns in the gaseous state. Accidentally inhaled, it can kill you. It contributes to erosion. It decreases effectiveness of automobile brakes, and it's been found in tumors of terminal cancer patients. He asked 50 people to ban this chemical. 43 said yes, six were undecided, and only one knew that the chemical was water. The title of this prize-winning thing was How Gullible Are We? But, you know, the, the Ephesian church, they weren't gullible. They weren't easily led astray. They tested things. They brought things back to the scriptures to make sure that what they were being told was true. And so Jesus gives a great commendation. Hey, you guys are a serving, a sacrificing, a steadfast and separated church. So by all outwards appearances, you say, man, this is a solid church. They're doing really well. You know, this is so good that all these great things are being said about them. But like with every church, there's a problem. And so Jesus starts with, here's what you're doing well, but I do have something that you're doing wrong, something that you're neglecting. Now we come to Jesus' rebuke, verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. There's a sobering word. Jesus is sharing all these positive things, and now comes this word, nevertheless, which means despite all of that, Jesus took into account, here's all the things that you're doing, but despite all the good things you're doing, I still have something of a rebuke to give you because there's something you're not doing. There's something that you've been neglecting. The problem that the church in Ephesus had was that they left their first love. Their first love being that relationship with Jesus that they established and started when they first got saved. And for some reason, through all this service and all these works and all that they've done for Jesus, they've left that relationship behind and they've just continued to, to pursue this kind of works-based relationship, but left that love-based relationship in the past. They were a working church, but sometimes allowed that to eclipse the love relationship they had with Jesus. 
You know, I want us to think about this for a moment because there's a lot of things that can get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. And, and we can list a lot of sins and, and we recognize our own sin and the things that, you know, are temptations for us and get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. But those are hard to justify. You know, you know they're wrong. I know they're wrong. It's hard to say, you know what, I'm going to continue to pursue this sinful behavior even though it gets into my relationship with Jesus and hurts it. But there's one thing that we can justify pretty well, and that is working and serving Jesus, doing things for Jesus. And this is something that we see here with this church in Ephesus, that sometimes our service for Jesus is a place where we justify the fact that we're neglecting time with him. Oh, I'm doing for you, Jesus. I don't have time to spend with you. I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm involved in here and I'm and I'm serving over there. And, and I think I know in my own life, this is one of those areas where it's easy for us just to step back and say, yeah, I know my personal time with you is lacking greatly, but look what I'm doing for for you. Look at all the service I'm involved in. And so oftentimes we replace work for relationship. And I look back on my Christian life and I see this many times happening to me and, and falling into this trap of thinking that, you know, the most important thing is all that I'm doing for God. And I'm so in, you know, involved in this, this, and this, and I'm starting to neglect that time personally with him. You know, I don't think it happens overnight. I think it's something that's more gradual. But you, know, you go and a year goes by and you look back and you think, man, I've done all these different things. I'm involved in all this different stuff. But what happened to that time that was regular, that time that was intimate, that time that I used to have so much with Jesus and now I'm doing all this stuff, but, but that's kind of been left on the back burner. You know, something that I want to share that it took me a while to, to learn is Jesus is more concerned with our time spent with him than what we do for him. He's more concerned about the relationship we have with him than our service for him. Jesus doesn't just want servants. He wants sons and daughters. He, he, we're his children. And I think too often we kind of miss that relationship that we have and we think, I just got to do, 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 work, work, work for Jesus instead of first and foremost, he wants fellowship with me. He wants intimacy with me. And really out of that time with him, that's when he desires us to serve and to work. But when we're trying to serve and work and neglect that, we've kind of missed the whole point. You know, as a husband, I, and I talk with a lot of men, I think this is one of those issues we have with our wives. We, we do a lot of work. We, you know, we go to work and we earn money and we provide. And, you know, we miss something about that intimate time, that personal time with our wives. And sometimes our wives will complain about the relationship with us. And we respond by thinking, hey, I work you know, 50 hours or 60 hours a week, I pay the bills, I put a roof over your head, I bought you a car, I did this, this, this. And we're missing the whole reality that she's not, you know, mad or, or upset the fact that we work hard. She's missing the fact that, hey, yeah, you're doing all that, but the personal time we have is, is gone. You're at work all the time. You're doing all this stuff. Yeah, you're providing for the family, but where is our time? When are we going to get some intimate time where we just talk and we connect? Uh, and, you know, they appreciate the work, but what they want even more is an investment personally. And I think, you know, we see that with Jesus. It's like, well, Jesus, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and, I, and I'm serving here. And it's like, yeah, I appreciate all that. But what about us? What happened to that time where, where we used to really connect and used to come and read the word and used to pray and, and we had that wonderful, intimate time? I want that back. Personal time with Jesus needs to be more important than what we do for Jesus. 
What we do for Jesus should be a response to our personal time with Jesus, not a replacement of our personal time with Jesus. I would say that should be our biggest priority. I think for a lot of Christians, what we do is our biggest priority, but really our biggest priority should be time with him and let that be the foundation that what we do builds out of. When Jesus is not the priority of your life, he will not be the love of your life. You know, I think something we need to understand is that our love for Jesus is always in a state of movement. It's never stagnant. We're either moving closer to him or we're moving farther from him. And what's going to determine how and what direction we move is the time that we invest in him. And that's the same with any relationship. You can take marriage or whatever else. You're in a state of movement. You're going to be moving, you know, to grow deeper into your relationship with your spouse. If you're spending intimate time, you're connecting, you're, you're, you're investing in it, or you're going to be going farther apart because you're neglecting that time and you're not spending any time with each other. And any relationship we have, that is a reality and especially true with our time with Jesus. But, you know, with all our other relationships, it's a two-person game, so to speak, of sometimes we're wanting to invest in it and the other person isn't, and we get frustrated because we're trying, we're trying, and they're just pushing away. But with Jesus, the only reason relationship time doesn't happen is all on us. He always wants it. He's always available. He's always, hey, my, uh, my calendar's free. I'm here for you. I want time with you. Whenever you're available, I'm going to meet with you. So if it doesn't happen, it's not on his end saying, you know, I'm trying to run the world right now. You know, I'll get back with you next week. It's always, we're just saying, well, I'm too busy. I got this going on. We're the ones who ultimately keep that from happening. So this problem that the Ephesian church had is oftentimes a problem that we as Christians have. We leave our first love, we neglect that relationship with Jesus, we no longer make him the priority of our life. And I'm sure all of us have experienced that. At some point in time in our our Christian life, we recognize, you know what, I left that first love. I'm not spending that time with Jesus like I used to, it's just not the same. And, and, you know, that's a, a challenge, that's a struggle that, you know, we often have, and that's something that these believers there in Ephesus were dealing with. And so... Verse 5, Jesus tells us what we need to do. Here's what you guys have done. You've left your first love. Well, what's the remedy? What are you going to do to fix it? Well, let me share with you what Jesus says. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. There are three things here that Jesus shares with us as the remedy to the problem of leaving your first love. First, remember. Second, repent. And third, repeat. Remember, repent, repeat. The first thing you need to do if you've left your first love, if you've neglected that personal time with Jesus, he says, remember from where you've fallen. Well, remember back to what it was like, what you used to do when you used to spend time regularly with Jesus, when you used to pray every day, when you used to spend time in his word. Remember back to that time before you fell and left your first love. Remember what it was like when you had that intimacy and that closeness and you were just so excited to spend time with Jesus and you made it a priority in your life to do it. Remember what you left, what you neglected. Why? So you can get back there. Look back, remember what it was so you can go back and it can become like that again. So first thing you need to do is remember. The second one's even more important. Jesus tells us, repent. Now, repentance so often is confused with being sorry, and it's different. 
You know, being sorry is really just a feeling. It's often just a feeling for being caught. You know, oh, I'm sorry because of the punishment. I'm sorry because, you know, I was found out. Repentance is to turn away from something. And so you can be sorry and not turn away. Repentance and sorry, they don't always go hand in hand. Now, you can be sorry and you can be repentant and turn away, but a repentance is to turn away. And so if we're neglecting time with Jesus, if you're truly repentant, it's going to be, I'm going to turn away from what I'm doing and go back to, and that's why we remember what it used to be like. I'm going to come back to that time with him. I'm going to make him that priority again because I truly am repentant that I left that. I truly am repentant that it's, it's no longer in my life like it should be, and so now I'm going to make it a priority like I used to do. So when you leave your first love, usually the problem is something has come between you and God. And there's lots of things that can come between us and God. Work is one of the things, as in for Jesus, this ministry sometimes, you know, is the thing that, that, you know, hinders us. We see that with the Ephesian church, but there's lots of things. Relationships are so common. Sometimes it's relationships that are very ungodly. You know, it's a relationship with a boyfriend, with a girlfriend, you know, and it's just not something that's healthy, not something that's good. Maybe they're not even a believer. And so it's something that definitely gets in the way of your relationship with the Lord. But you know what? It could be a good relationship like your husband, your wife, your kids, you know, a good godly friend. And you elevate them to a place where, you know what, they're more important to me than Jesus. And that's a problem. That now is a problem because now they've become an idol because now they're the most important thing in your life when God should be the most important thing in your life. And now they're the problem. They're they're kind of hindering that love relationship with Jesus because you've elevated them to a higher priority than you should. You know, it might be your job. You know, I think especially as men, we get sucked into working hard, advancing, wanting to do so well, and, you know, we put in more and more time and effort and hours, and, and sometimes that can be such a, a driving force in our life that we just think, man, I just don't have time for Jesus anymore because I'm spending so much time with this job that I've made maybe a bigger priority in my life than I should. It might be a desire for the stuff of the world. I just request for more and more things that that aren't healthy, that aren't good for me. Uh, And maybe some of them aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but they become bad when they become this pursuit for us that is bigger than loving and following Jesus. It might be disappointment. Something didn't work out the way that you thought, and you blame God. And that now becomes this problem in your relationship with him. You know, God, I have this issue in my life or this problem that happened and and you should have fixed it or you should have been there or whatever it is. And now all of a sudden, it's been this wedge that comes between us and him. Whatever it is, whatever has come between us and him, Jesus says, repent. Change direction. Stop those things. Stop if it's a relationship, if it's a wrong priority, if it's a sin, you know, Move that aside, repent of it, and come back to that first love with Jesus. So remember what it was like. Repent for what you've done. And then the third thing is repeat. Jesus says, do the first works. Do what you used to do. That's what he's speaking of the first works. When you used to spend time with Jesus all the time, when you used to pray all the time, when you used to be in the word, when you used to have that intimacy with him, do that again. Repeat it. 
Okay, you know what it's like because you've been there before, Ephesian Church. You, you know what it's like to spend time with me because you've actually spent time with me in the past. And so remember what you used to do, repent for where you're at, and now repeat. Go back and do what you used to do so you can have me as the love of your life again. Now, I want you to note that you can only remember that intimate time with Jesus, and you can only repeat that time with Jesus if you actually have had that time with Jesus at some point in your life. The Ephesian church did, and that's why he's saying this to them. But obviously, if they didn't, then there would be no repeating. There would be ultimately, you need to repent because I've never been your first love. And you need to make my, your first love for the first time. And there are a lot of people, that's where they're at. It's like, well, Jesus, you've never been my first love. I know I've never been your first love, and that's why things need to change. And so, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, I, I don't know how to, you know, repeat something that I've never done. Well, then you're not repeating. You're ultimately starting from scratch and making Jesus the priority of your life and, re, you know, just spending that time with him. So we've seen the description of Jesus, the commendation, the rebuke, the remedy, and now we come to the warning, which Jesus gives in verse 5, the latter part. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus gives a stern warning. He gives a stern warning in every one of these letters, and I think it's important to remember that you know there are consequences for disobedience. There are consequences for things that we do against the Lord. Um, and if we don't remember, we don't repent, we don't repeat, we're not obedient to Jesus' uh, remedy. He says he will remove the lampstand from its place. Jesus ultimately saying, I'm going to remove my light from this church. And I think this is very significant because this is a church that is serving and working and doing all these things, probably ultimately for, oh, look at how Jesus is moving. Look at how we're shining for him. And I think Jesus wants them to see, you know what? You can't truly shine for me when you neglect time with me. Oh, yeah, you're doing lots for me. But you know what? If you want to continue to neglect me and just try to serve and do work for me but not spend any intimate time with me, the light's going to go out. You can only do so much service for the Lord when you have really not filled yourself by spending time with him. You're just going to you know, fizzle out. What you're, you're not going to have much to give. You're going to be running on fumes, so to speak. And so you have to continue to invest in yourself spiritually if you're truly going to be effective in shining for Christ as you serve him both within the church and without the church. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you don't obey this, you continue in this way where you're neglecting personal time with me, then I'm going to remove my light from this church. In these seven messages, Jesus doesn't normally give another commendation. But I think specifically for this church in Ephesus, he doesn't want to leave them on this downer because they're doing really good. You know, they, they, they are serving him. As you look at the other churches, you know, Ephesus is doing really well in comparison to others. And so he actually gives another commendation. I think for them, this is kind of, you know, I don't want you to get super down and disappointed because I do think you're doing well. I do agree that you need to come back and give me, you know, the priority that I deserve. So he gives another commendation. It's the only church that he does this with. And so now we have uh, an additional commendation to the ones he already gave in verses 2 and 3. But he says this in verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You know, I think something so important that we see when Jesus was here on this earth, that we see through scripture, is that God hates sinful deeds. 
Notice it doesn't say you hate the Nicolaitans just like I hate the Nicolaitans. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans just like I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You know, God hates sin. And too often our problem is we love sin and we struggle because we're tempted to do it. And God wants to bring us to a place where we truly start to hate sin want nothing to do with sin, see sin for what it truly is, and steer clear of it. And Jesus is saying, you know what? I am impressed with you, Ephesians, that what the Nicolaitans are doing, the sinful deeds that they are involved in, you guys hate that. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? What's going on about them? Well, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is also condemned uh, in chapter 2, verse 15. And in that verse, we're really seeing that it's immorality and idolatry are the two main things that we see there. And, you know, Jesus hates sin as a whole, but he definitely hates immorality. He definitely hates idolatry. And the Ephesian church, we're in that same boat. We don't like immorality. We hate uh, uh, idolatry. And so there's something here that once again, Jesus says, I want to commend you guys for your hatred of sin. And I think that's a challenge for us to get to that place where it's like, God, I love this sin. I want you to change my heart so that I hate it. I'm tempted by it. I'm drawn in by it. I want to get to a place where I'm like you, where I see this sin as a devastating thing that hurts me, that hurts my relationship with you, and that I just don't want anything to do with anymore. But there's another commendation for these um, believers in Ephesus. So they're not only a serving, sacrificing, steadfast, and separated church, but they also hate these sinful deeds of immorality and idolatry. So we've seen the description of Jesus, the commendation, the rebuke, the remedy, the warning, and now an additional commendation, which isn't normal in these letters. And now we're going to come to the exhortation in verse 7. And this is the same exhortation that he gives to every single church. And it's something that he said a lot as he taught uh, while he was here on this earth. And it's probably the most important exhortation that Jesus gives to us. He says this in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, we all have ears. Our problems are that we don't often use them for what they're good for, listening. You got ears, but are you going to listen? I'm sharing this important truth with you, but what are you going to do with it? And not only are you just going to listen, but are you actually going to listen and apply what you say or what was said to you? You know, I mean, any relationship, especially those who are married, you know, you have this where, you know, Jenny would say, did you hear me? Yes. I heard you, but I wasn't listening. There's a difference. You know, I can hear what you're saying, but it doesn't mean that I'm actually listening to actually apply it and do something about it. And so, you know, oftentimes we will read and we'll hear something that Jesus says, but we're not really listening. It's not something that we're taking on board in our life and saying, I want to do and be obedient to what you've just said. And this is the challenge that Jesus gives. When he preaches in the Gospels, we see so often he concludes with that. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Are you going to listen? Are you going to follow? Are you going to obey what I say or not? You know, and that's the challenge that Jesus gives. But realize it's not just when he preaches a sermon that we have recorded. The reality is all of Scripture is inspired by him. And so as we read the word of God, do we have ears that are going to listen and receive and apply and be obedient to what he tells us? And so this is the challenge that he gives here to the church in Ephesus. Are you going to make me your first love? That's the the challenge here, you, you've walked away. The remedy is you know, to come back to that. And now, 
Do you have ears to hear? Are you willing to actually do this? Well, now he finishes with the promise of a reward. If you do it, if you're obedient, if you do what I tell you, this is what's going to happen for you. Verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The reward for this church, the reward for obedience, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the freedom, the ability to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is very interesting because back in Genesis, the Garden of Eden, paradise, there wasn't any sin yet. And what did they do? They ate of the tree of life. They were going to be able to live forever. Well, what caused there to be a problem? Well, sin entered. And because of the sin, not only were they removed from the Garden of Eden, but God places this flaming sword and this angel to guard the tree of life so they can't come back and continue to live in this sinful state. But the Bible tells us that when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, we're going to have another tree of life. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each yielding, each tree yielding its fruit every month. So in the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be another tree of life like there was in the Garden of Eden. And ultimately what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm going to give you the, the privilege of eating this tree of life, well, it's only going to be for those who are there with him in heaven for eternity. And so what a wonderful reward for obedience and following him. So in this message, Jesus gives seven important things. His description of himself, which ultimately focuses on him being the priority that the Ephesian church has left behind. His commendation, you guys are a serving church, a sacrificing church, a steadfast church, and also you hate sin like I do. His rebuke, you've left your first love. You've left that intimate relationship with me. His remedy, remember, repent, and repeat. His warning, if you don't obey, I'm going to remove my light from your church. His exhortation, listen and apply what I've said. And his promised reward, you will then get to eat from the tree of life. So in this message to the church, there's a, there's a lot for us to learn, but ultimately I want us to be those that have ears to hear, that we can actually say, Lord, I want to take on board what you say, and I actually want to apply it to my life and allow it to change me. And obviously, you know, we might look and say, wow, you know, I'm not doing so well in my, you know, making Jesus the top priority in my life. But you know what? He might have not said you're steadfast. He might have not said you're serving. You know, there's all these other things that he was staying positive about them. So, you know, let's look at everything they're doing. And maybe you say, man, I need to work on those areas as well, because at least Jesus can say to them, you're really doing well in those areas uh, and you're, you're not doing so well here. But a good challenge in all these things, because obviously he wants us doing well in all of that. Uh, and he wants all of that service to stem from that intimate time with him. Let's pray. Father, we, we so often don't recognize, or maybe we just don't put it into practice, the truth that it is such a wonderful privilege to get to spend time with the creator of heaven and earth. And sometimes I'm blown away as I look at my own attitude towards time with you sometimes and, and missing that reality 
that it is a wonderful privilege. It's not some duty that I have to do. It is a privilege that we get to do. And I pray that you would remind us of that. I pray that that, that love that maybe once was so on fire and maybe it's not so much for some, Lord, that you would get us back to that place where, man, we just can't wait to spend time with you, can't wait to talk with you, can't wait to hear from you through your word, that we're just excited about it. We think about you through the day. We, we want to become more like you. We want time with you. And uh, I know there are so many things that are trying to, to keep us from that, Lord. We have an enemy that's desperate to destroy that in our life, Lord. But uh, I just pray, God, that you would help us first and foremost to recognize that all these other things stem from that intimacy with you, from that time with you, uh, and that if, if that is something that we have been neglecting, if that is something that is not the priority that it should be in our life, that you would help us to change that, that we truly would be able to remember what it once was like, that we would repent from where we are now, and that we repeat for what we used to do. And if we never done it before, that we would start now making you priority, recognizing that that is so important in our life, Lord. But I just pray that you would help us to see that, man, we're getting to spend time with the all-powerful God who gave his life for us and that we just wouldn't be buying into a lie that, man, I just got to do it because it's, you know, it's a duty, but what a privilege that we have and that you make yourself accessible to us, that you tell us to come boldly to your throne of grace, that you're always with us is just something that is such a wonderful privilege that I pray that you would help us to remember. Um, but more importantly, as you even say here, Lord, that we would have ears to hear, that we would listen and apply and actually put these things into practice and make you the priority of our life. Uh, and so I just ask, God, that you would take the truth of your word uh, and help us to actually live it out and change us with it. Um, so we just thank you for uh, just an evening, uh, just to come back together again, um, and just as a fellowship, worship and be encouraged from your word. And so just help us grow. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.